Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What is happening, everybody? It is Crossed Up. Uh, alongside Anthony Sanfilippo, I'm Bob Wankel. Anthony, feeling a little bit under the weather here recently, but he's a trooper. He's here. He wants to kind of do the postmortem of the 2018 Phillies. Mercifully, this thing has finally ended. And uh, I know we were, we were out last week, took a one-week break, and, and here we are now to talk about really the way that, that September unfolded, uh, the disaster that it was uh, where that leaves the Phillies heading into a crucial offseason. We'll talk about Matt Clentak's uh, comments on Monday afternoon, and then uh, Andy McPhail got in front of a microphone for the first time in a while today, and, and we'll kind of break all of that down. But uh, we have a lot to get to tonight. Uh, Anthony, how, how are we holding up, man? You know, I've been really sick for about nine days. And it's the primary reason we didn't record a show last week, because it was really bad last week. Um, and still not great. And you might hear me cough a couple times during this episode but i couldn't let this go any further we have we had to break this down bob we got to get to this and i know that there are some uh listeners who have been clamoring for us to talk about it and uh so i figure i can i can suck it up hit the cough button on the microphone a couple times and uh and get this thing done tonight it made me feel good that people actually missed us. Like, I actually got some some tweets, like, where have you guys been, you know? And uh, it's it's also funny because you, you sound like when you watch 60 Minutes, when they, when they like, kind of black out someone's face and they, they, they change the voice, like witness protection. You kind of <laughs> you, you have that going on right now. So, yeah, a little uh, gruff. No, we, we, we appreciate the – I'm sure the audience appreciates you toughing it out here tonight. Um you know, I, I guess, and I, I didn't really know where to start with this thing, but if we just kind of recap what happened here, obviously the month of September was uh, an epic disaster and a historical failure by the Phillies. And just to kind of lay this thing out there, uh, they were 64-49 and 49 on August 7th. They had a one-and-a-half game lead in the NL East, but they go 16-33 and 33 down the stretch, have a nine-game losing streak, uh, also, over the last week and a half of the season, in which they were outscored 70 to 21, uh, they wrap up with two wins, meaningless wins over the Braves to finish at 80 and 82, a 14 game improvement uh, upon the 2017 record. Um, but what was your take on, on how this thing played out, especially over the last 10 days, dating back to when they went into that four game series with Atlanta? And do you really feel, and I know that a lot of people talked about this, you feel this team quit on Gabe Kapler? I do. I absolutely do, because it was really ugly. It was really ugly. I felt like the pitchers were just, you know, once they were done, once they were officially eliminated, um, and I'm, what I mean by that is the, the Colorado series especially, I felt like they were just up there throwing balls and letting the, letting the Rockies just hit them. The Rockies were incredible. Now, they're an aggressive team to begin with, but they knew first pitch fastball was coming, and they just kept they just kept teeing off on it. They had all those home runs, doubles, triples. I think they hit for a cycle in one inning against uh, I think it was against Tommy Hunter, if I'm not mistaken. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I think that the team just basically said, yeah, we're, we're done. We're done on the season. This has been a mess. This has been a disaster. And I think that they're, I think that they were so upset with the way the team was managed in late August, mid to late August, and early September. And I think that that's, I think that they felt like they were, things were going okay, and then the micromanagement started, pulling pitchers in the third, fourth inning, pinch hitting for guys without even an at-bat in the second inning, Um, constant lineup flux, nobody knew who was going to be doing what on a given night. And I think that that kind of, using 40 guys, I mean, that's not, that's not necessarily the manager. That's more of a general manager. But I think that they, the whole, if you're a player in that situation, you're like, what the hell is this team doing? What are they, what are they attempting to do here? And it just, it just failed. Every decision that they made was a mistake. Everything was just wrong. Every defensive error, every defensive uh, lineup was, was wrong. I mean, when you had Pat Neshek in the Atlanta series saying, yeah, I threw a ball that was a ground ball double play, and then I turned around and, oh, there's nobody there. I didn't even know we were shifting. I mean, really. I mean, that's, that's indicative. That's really indicative um, of what was going on. And, and then you got a, a great quote from uh, Ken Rosenthal, right? Yeah, I'll give this to you right here. Um, he wrote in The Athletic, uh, or on The Athletic, forgive me for suspecting that if I hooked up some of the Phillies players to a lie detector machine, their answers about Kapler would align with the blistering criticism of their fans. And I think it's worth noting the source of that prose. I mean, you talk about Ken Rosenthal. This is a well-known, well-sourced, nationally respected reporter, and it's not a throwaway line. Ken Rosenthal is not really into open speculation or, or throwing dirt on somebody, you know, just for the hell of it, kicking them while they're down. That's not really his style, and he doesn't have that hyper-focused ultra-critical, up-close-and-personal look at the Phillies that, that maybe someone like in this market or you or myself might have. I mean, that, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty damning line, I would say, from a guy like Rosenthal. And really, I, for the most part this season, was pro-Gabe Kapler. I defended him in the sense that I felt that this team was not very talented. Uh, I did think that they overachieved, so did you. I think that we've noted that several times on this show. And I had a hard time saying that this guy should be removed after one season, given really this team's limitations. But at the same time, when you watch them roll over and die in Atlanta, and then go on the road to Colorado and just just nothing. I mean, just getting pounded, throwing away at bats, completely lifeless, no pride whatsoever. And then you see quotes like that. And, you know, I never wrote at any point, as, as, as crazy as I am, and, and you've heard me on this show, you've read me on the website, you know that I get angry pretty quickly. I have a very small tolerance for, for nonsense and for bullshit and for lousy baseball. But I never came to the point where I said, I believe they should fire Gabe Kapler. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that when I watched them in Colorado, I said, man, maybe he did lose this team. Maybe they do have to move on. I still don't think I would have done it at the end of the day, but I, I, I certainly understand those who would. Uh, I will say that. Yeah, I, I'm not 100% behind the belief that 
players won't come here because he's the manager. Um, I think it's a. I think it could well be. You know, if there's a, if there's like a tiebreaker decision that a free agent has to make, it could come into play. But 90 percent of it has to do with the dollars, um, and going to an organization that you think has a chance to win. Managers kind of like third or fourth down on that list. So I don't. I don't play into the fact that oh Kapler should be gone because it's not going to attract Manny Machado or Bryce Harper or Patrick Corbin or anybody else. That said, I'm of the mindset that everyone in this hierarchy was a failure this year. And the fact that they've come out and defended it, doubled down on it, only makes me think even more that they are a sham and not... um, not the people that should be in charge of a team trying to get to a point where they're going to contend for a championship again. The only person of the three, and I give, and of the three I give you is McPhail, um, Clentac, and Kapler, that even gave me a little modicum of of hope was was McPhail today, but even that was just kind of cursory. Um, I, well, hold on. Let me let me stop you there because I want to talk about McPhail. Um, I had yeah, the opportunity. Yeah, okay. to, I, I I had the opportunity to watch it in its entirety, and I I want to I want to take one minute before we get to that. Let me let me just ask you something. I, I get the sense talking to you and and having talked to you now over the last couple of weeks that you would move on from Gabe Kapler. Is is that correct? I, I would move on from the whole group. Like I like I'm not just sitting here saying fire the manager. And Matt Clintac bring me in somebody else. No. I think that John, I really want to hear John Middleton. That's who I want to hear from. And, and he has, you know, he's been incredibly quiet. I do know, we do know that he had a meet, he called a meeting with the entire uh, group down at Citizens Bank Park. Uh, was it the, was it Friday? Um, when they came home from Colorado, and uh, everybody was pretty tight-lipped about the the meeting. Yeah, McPhail actually uh, characterized him as crabby. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was crabby. Um, finish. Yeah. So, excuse me. That said, um, he's not happy. He, he can't be happy with with his the people he's put in charge of this team, and. Uh, if their approach is going to be the same next year, then how can you, how can you sit there and say that this is going to be successful when they completely ignored a lot of basic tenets of what is what makes successful baseball teams, including in, including in this modern era, Bob? Okay, well, look, look. they. Go ahead. Let me let me just play devil's advocate here for a second. Let's let's go this way. Okay, and, and you know that I'm not one to just piss positive for the sake of pissing positive. But let me say this: 
Is it in any way, shape, or form a good thing that the Phillies collapsed the way that they did? I, it was Jason Stark, and I know that you did your own research. I know that you <laughs> sat down and took the time to look this up. But Jason Stark comes out and says that the Phillies are the first team ever to finish under 500 after being 15 games over, 113 games into a season. Is there anything to be said for the fact that they had such a monumental collapse at the end of the year that it was actually a good thing that they didn't win 85, 86, 87 games in fall just a couple games short of Atlanta, but instead they got completely blown out of the water because it gives them a more realistic assessment that they're nowhere near the Atlanta Braves. And to that end, they're not even the, the Washington Nationals at this point. Does is, is that a positive, perhaps, in that they can look at this and say, all right, we were pretty good for four or four and a half months, but we were nowhere near good enough the last 45, 50 games of the season, and we know that now. And if we're being honest in our evaluations... And it depends who you believe. Do you believe Matt Clentak, Andy McPhail? And like I said, we'll talk about it. But is, is there anything to be said for the fact that, yeah, maybe, you know what, this was the best thing that could have happened because there's no pretending that you're one player away or you're a little bit of patience and, and a, a tweak here or there away from pushing this thing over the top? Um, I, I, can, I can see an argument for that, but my ultimate answer is no. And, and my ultimate answer is no because – we thought that they were uh, going to be a competitive team who fell just short from day one, which meant that we thought that there was enough talent here to be competitive and to kind of give you the season that they ultimately ended up giving you. I mean, we thought it was going to be a little bit better. I think you had them at 83 wins. I had them at 85. Um, but how they got to where they got to w was – it was, it was crazy. It was smoke and mirrors, really. They never hit. They were the worst defensive team in baseball. Um, the bullpen was good for, what, a month and a half? Other than that, it stunk. It, it was all about starting pitching until the starting pitching ran out of gas in, in August. Um, and at that point, they had nothing. So if we thought at the beginning of the season that, uh, that these players were good players... And then they came out and didn't have good seasons. And this is where I was disappointed with McPhail, is when he said that there was marked improvement throughout the roster. Uh, other than Aaron Nola, who really improved? I, I, have, I, I can't... I, I, do we want to say Edibre Ramos? I mean, is that improvement? Do we want to say Sir Anthony Michael Dominguez? Franco, 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 Nick Williams in certain aspects. Yeah, slight. But there was not market, market improvement. It's so, it's so, it's so, we've said this already. It's so not a, a good finish that we go into next season without any knowledge of who's playing what position. Right, and, we, and we've talked, and we have talked about this, and we've talked about the, the list of unknowns and, and the fact that we didn't get the answers that we thought we would by the end of the season. I, I will tell you this, though. Was it not the plan all along to say, you know, hopefully you get these young guys in here, they take steps forward, and, and certainly at best they were erratic or inconsistent or whatever you want to call it. But I would look at this and say, 
one thing I'll give Matt Klintak some credit for, I, I, and I can't believe I'm about to do this, and I know exactly how you're going to come back at me here, but this was a flawed roster. At least this team was able to identify that they had so many different issues that they didn't go all in, that they didn't take a top five or multiple top five, top ten prospects and try to go out and make the big splash to push a team that was, was sputtering or they kind of suspected may sputter to the finish. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine going out and getting Manny Machado now? Was Manny Machado the difference for this team in hindsight? I mean, let's be real. I, I, I think I argued at one time that perhaps going out and getting a big-name player like that might provide an emotional spark for the clubhouse. But I think that this team now, looking at what played out over the final two months of the season, was far, much further away than just a Manny Machado from being a playoff team. You look at the Chicago Cubs, the Colorado Rockies, these these dynamite teams like the Red Sox, Astros, Yankees, and the AL. I mean, the Phillies are nowhere near this, right? So now imagine if they fell short and they would have done it at the expense of significant minor league resources. So could I say that, you know, really in hindsight, it, it didn't work out and the moves that Matt Klintak made at the deadline didn't necessarily pay off, but at least they didn't leverage the future in order to try to make this smoke and mirror show, uh, you know, get across the finish line. It, it, can we... Can we applaud that? Can we say, well, you know, it, it, maybe that's maybe he actually did a pretty good job, all things considered, that way. It's a Pyrrhic victory, Bob. It really is. Because, yeah, okay, he didn't give up on big prospects. But you know that their intent was to bring in veterans to win the division and make the playoffs. It's not like he, well, he said, well, mean, we're not going to go. It's not, it's, not like, it's not like he went out and said, Eh, we're not going to chase the biggest names. We're just going to go get some other guys and see if they can help us. Well, I mean, they, that's, that's like that's like hedging your bet. You just say, you know, we're not going to, we're not going for broke. Yeah, I mean, we want to try to win. We're they, going to try. You know, at the time they like, did try for they did try for Machado. Let's for, let's well, not yeah, forget okay. that. Okay, I mean, within reason, but then they okay. they hit a price where they said we're not we're not going to do that. I mean, I don't know. And, and again, if if I, I I did this with you before. But why did they not? But why did they not do it? It's not that they didn't do it because they didn't want to give up on a young prospect because they thought that their team was wasn't quite good enough and it was still flawed. They didn't want to do it because they're not, there was no guarantee that Machado would sign for the next year. So they didn't want to they didn't want to give up on a higher end prospect with the notion that he might only be a two month player. Big difference, right? I mean, if if the, if. If Manny Machado is signed for at least another year, I bet you the Phillies give up the prospect that the that the Orioles wanted. I guess I, I look at it, and I know I'm painting myself into this corner now where I seem like I'm, I'm becoming the defender of Gabe Kapler and the defender of Matt Klintak, which I, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm less than thrilled with how this thing played out. I, I thought it was embarrassing. I'm, I'm frustrated that this team feels further away from contention than I thought they would here in October of 2018. Three years ago, I thought that they might be there by now. I, I certainly thought that at the end of this season, even if they fell short, that they would be on the cusp of greatness. And, and maybe they are, but I certainly don't feel that way right now. I, I'm, not, I'm not presenting this, this viewpoint to say that I'm pleased with the job they've done. I just don't know. I mean, you may seem – maybe it's proactive. Maybe you're being proactive by saying you pull the plug on the whole thing. I think that that's premature. I, I, I don't – if you're going to do that, what's the solution then, right? Is it, is it that 
you go in and you, you, you what? You hire who as a general manager and you replace Gabe Kapler with who? It, it, how are those moves going to get the Phillies to the playoffs in 2019? Like, how does that expedite the process? Um, and that would be my question. I'm not, I, I'm not as down on the guys who had down years as everybody else is. I, I think that the organization uh, is part of the problem for guys like Cesar Hernandez, Odubel Herrera, Aaron Altair. Um, not that I think Aaron Altair's much of anything, but he's he should certainly be better than 181. Um, uh, even Scott Kingery. Like, I, I think that there's more to these players, and they all had bad years. And why? And it just it just seems silly to me. And we've talked about it ad nauseum about how their swing planes have changed and everything else. Does that mean that the organization's doing right by the players? Or the players just aren't, you know, aren't the kind of players that you can do that with? So maybe if you let them go back to being what they were previously, when Cesar Hernandez was a two eighty five hitter who got on base all the time and didn't strike out a hundred times hundred and fifty five times a year. And Odubel Herrera wasn't was only hitting fourteen home runs, but hit hit closer to three hundred, you know. And Aaron Altair maybe gives you a, is is a decent fourth outfielder who can give you fifteen home runs in 300, 350 at bats a year, um, maybe hit two fifty, you know. You, you add that back into the equation, the, the Phillies are far better than an eighty win team this year, this year. But, but, okay, hold on, though. It, and then that, and listen, I understand when you look at guys, and we've talked about this, uh, Cesar Hernandez or Dubal Herrera, there was regression in certain players, and, and that's probably not coincidental. That's probably not entirely a coincidence. But I will say, like, Matt Klintak was here the last two years when Cesar Hernandez was an ascending player. Like, could Gabe Kapler, could Gabe Kapler... <laughs> Who I'll be honest with you, from some 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 of the conversations that that I've had recently with people who are familiar with Gabe Kapler, I don't think that he has or could possibly have that much of an impact on a player's swing mechanics. Where you can say that Cesar Hernandez hit 40 points lower this year because Matt Klintak had more power in year three or four, and Gabe Kapler arrived on the scene. Like at some point. That falls on Cesar Hernandez. That falls on Odubel Herrera. Like, he didn't just fall off the deep end after the month of May because Gabe Kapler was the manager, because Matt Klintak was the GM. I, I think it's entirely unfair, frankly, to pin the the just woeful play from a guy like Odubel Herrera solely on the manager, the existence of Matt Klintak and their organizational hitting philosophies. I mean, at some point... I mean that that's a hell of a that's a hell of a drop off in a very short amount of time to say yep that's the problem. Well, I'm so I'm I'm sorry you just don't you just don't see that kind of change. What was how, how much more of a uppercut does Cesar Hernandez have this year? Uh, we, we talked about that the the swing the the um the launch angle increased by like threefold. Right. It's like nine degrees on average, and it was like three and a half okay. in previous years. How, so so then taking your argument and giving it right back to you. Do you think that Cesar Hernandez decided on his own that he was going to do that? 
Or do you think? No, I'm sure that there probably was some assistance from in the, within the organization. However, I will tell you that, and listen, this is the thing that it becomes then. If they're going to do that, and then they, he comes back and says, like, well, obviously, I'm not, I'm not having the same productivity. I want to do it my way. And they say, no, no, we love what you're doing. Well, then guess what? Like, you're not going to see Cesar Hernandez move this offseason. You're not going to see Odubel Her- uh, Herrera move this offseason. Because, like, if that, then they're doing exactly what the, the organization's telling them to do. I mean, they at some point would revert back to their old habits or their old swing paths if they felt that that was what was going to make them more successful. See, this is what I this is where I disagree because I, what I think is happening is, and I think that you're going to see this in this off season. I think that the Phillies are going to add players who they feel like um, can give you anywhere between twenty and thirty home runs. And they don't care what the batting average is. They don't care how much they strike out. They get on base, you know, 340 um, and give you between 20 and 30 home runs. And if they have eight guys in the lineup who can do that, that's what they're happy with. That's what they, that's what they want. That's what they want. We'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm very curious to see if that's what they do. I think that... You know, listening to, to McPhail specifically today, um, I, I don't think he was quite so stubborn as Matt Klintak. I got the impression more that, yeah, there was an acknowledgement there that, yeah, having the lowest batting average in the National League or the second lowest batting average in the NL is probably not the, the ideal or optimal outcome. I think that there is an acknowledgement subtly from both Klintak and McPhail that they need better players. And so we do agree in the sense that, yeah, they're probably going to move on from several of these players this offseason. I think that this is going to be a pretty drastic uh, you know, or dramatic offseason in that way. I expect quite a substantial player turnover. With that said, though, are the Phillies going to sabotage themselves to, to get to this point? I mean, you're going to trade Odubel Herrera, right? Is, isn't that how this is going to go? Do you think that they did themselves any favors by taking a player who had a 781 OPS in 2016, 778 last year, and then 730 this past season? I mean – his trade value is at its at, at its low point right now. I mean, the, the, the contract is certainly tradable. The, the contract's fantastic, and that's really where his value is. Twenty, He's owed $23 million over the next three seasons yeah. combined. I, I, think that I, mean, the, I think there are teams out there who see that contract, who know his past, who will say, oh, we'll trade for him and we'll let him be what he is and, and take that and be happy with it. So I do think that there's value in Odubel Herrera. In a, on a trade on a trade market, I do think there's value in Cesar Hernandez in the trade market. Oh, I mean, certainly there's there's value in, in, in Cesar Hernandez on the trade market and Odubel Herrera. I mean, if you listen to me on this show for the first two three months of the season, I talked about how I've I've been a staunch Herrera supporter, and and really even as he was going through his struggles, I'm like, this is a guy that's supremely talented. We've seen him do it before. Yeah, he's a little bit streaky, but at the end of the day, the numbers are there. This, this season, I just don't know. I, I really don't. Maybe you're right. I guess my thing is I understand that you're being proactive by saying cut the cord, pull the plug, whatever. Let's move on. I'm looking at it and saying if this was their idea from the jump, that they had this program, they had these ideas that they wanted to implement, I think that it can take time. I think that there's an evaluation period. I think that there's an assessment period. I think that you need to identify what your issues are, what your strengths and what your organizational weaknesses are, how you plan to implement the changes that you want, and then you have to go out and execute them. And I think a big part of that execution is going out and getting better players, which all along we felt like, 
2019, this was the offseason in which that was going to happen. I think that it's kind of lame that if you get to this point, because I think that they're up against it now. But make no mistake, if we're sitting here next summer and we're talking about a team that's slogging under 500 and a team that's going to miss the playoffs for an eighth straight season, I'm absolutely out. And you can slam dunk on me and say, I told you so, dude. And I'll be like, you know what? I got to eat it. You were absolutely right. I just think it's kind of lame to bail at this point. I think that you have to let them go out and navigate this market with the payroll that they have, with the financial flexibility that they have, and the trade resources that they do have, and let them make over this roster the way that they want to, and then go see what they can do. And if they fail and they screw it up, it may set them back, but this, this is what we signed up for, I think. So, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I get it. I, I, I essentially do agree with most of what you're saying. I, I just got to let them see it through. And I think that they deserve – I, I think they deserve this offseason. I, I, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, I, and, and my argument, the only argument I make back is, if you see it the way I see it, then don't let them screw up again. Because then you're, then you're looking at multiple seasons of, of failure. Know, like what, what, did they, what did they screw what, up so What has Clentac done well? Who has he brought in that has been a success? I, listen, I, I get this again, but like, I mean, if you, if you want to look at it this way, right? I, like, let me, I'll, I'll humor this. I would say that did, did they like Christian Yelich? Were they in on him? Did they try to get him? Were they unsuccessful? Ultimately, yes. But I mean, I was actually encouraged by the fact that they were enamored by him because it turns out that the guy's probably the National League MVP, right? I look at guys like Charlie Morton. They went out, Clay Buckholz. These were guys that they did it in the wrong year, but ultimately those players turned into on the value, on the cheap what they thought those guys would be. It didn't work out in the specific season in which they went to get them, but like there was, I would say, some intelligent thought in going after those players because it worked out subsequently. I mean, so like, and we can talk, and you know I don't like Carlos Santana. You know my position on him. But again, I'm just, none of these moves were designed to make them a contender now. Like, I, it, how do they mess this up if they go out and sign Bryce Harper? I mean, if, they, if the Phillies go out and sign Bryce Harper this year and, and make a couple trades and, and build a roster that they feel more comfortable in and they make the playoffs, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that they are not that far away from being able to make themselves into a contender if they spend this money correctly. I get your concern that he hasn't been able to do it in the past, but they haven't really made those moves to go out and go for it, so to speak. The moves that they have made have been like – Maybe we can flip this guy for a prospect. Maybe we can get this guy as a stabilizing force so the rest of Major League Baseball doesn't take us as a joke anymore. You know, like a lot of these signings, the Carlos Santanas and the Jake Arrietas, hell yeah, I'm sure they wanted more production out of these guys. But you know, you know that these signings were partly about perception, about making yourselves relevant, about, you know, getting some veteran experience. That was certainly a factor in some of this. Yeah, I, I get that. But... You know, and we can sit here and you can, you know, Matt Clentak said... I can't believe, I can't believe I've become the, the Matt Clentak spokesman. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I, I didn't think even sitting down tonight that, that this is where we would go with this, frankly. I just, I, I don't know. I just think that I, I hear you. And I, like I said, there, there are some conversations that you know I've had recently that I, I would like to speak to specifically. Uh, I, I, I hope to be able to do that in the very near future on one of our, our next episodes because uh, there are some, some really troubling things that I heard, frankly. But I just think that 
they they should get this off season. Um, you know, and and where you're coming from is, is certainly uh, understandable, and and I get it, and and I'll probably be I very well may be kicking myself, you know, uh, twelve months from now, and you can play this conversation back to me and go, you asshole, <laughs> you know. I mean, that's entirely possible. I just uh, I don't know. That's that's kind of where I'm at. Hey, according um, to Clint, according to Clintac, it was the second best. For free agent group uh, from last year, right? With their war. Yeah, well, I'm, a, I'm about to join forces with you because I'm going to hammer him in a minute. Uh, let's let's talk about Andy <laughs> McPhail, who, you know, one of the most frustrating things about this season was listening to Gabe Kapler, um, just all sunshine and rainbows after every devastating loss or blowout loss. Uh, it was all good, you know. There was there was never any criticism. Uh, and it did. It, you know, early in the year, I kind of respected it. Um, I, I sort of was impressed by it. But by the end of the year, it was nauseating and it was frustrating and insulting. Uh, it really was. Um, Andy McPhail comes out today, uh, a day after Matt Klintak, I, I thought, just it was delusional in his press conference, frankly. <laughs> it annoyed me. It made it much harder to defend him, in my opinion. But Andy McPhail came out today and he talked to the media for about 35 minutes and um, – I had some takeaways. I, I, I got a chance to watch it in its entirety, and I, I jotted down some notes. And there's actually a story up right now on Crossing Broad uh, about you know, some of my takes and opinions about what I had heard today. Uh, you had mentioned this earlier in the show. And, you know, he, he talked about the starting pitching, and we've said a million times about how they lived and died by their starting pitching all season. And I thought it was interesting that he acknowledged that basically – that was the case. Um, he, had, he had called the, the hitting or the offense erratic. Um, he, he talked about just how bad the defense was and really that the starting pitching was what got him as far as it did. And he uh, alluded to the fact that the Philly starters um, led baseball in quality starts. Actually, they were second in Major League Baseball in quality starts. 58% of uh, the starters' appearances resulted in a quality start through August 18th. Uh, but as he said, their performance regressed, and that's when the spiral started. Um, and wh- why do you think that is? Why do I think that the they, they regressed the way that they did? Yeah, just just so let's you oh, know I, 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 for kicks. I think that uh, they regressed because they were all well beyond uh, their their previous innings limits. Uh, they had never pitched in a pennant race before. They had never pitched really well into August and, and hit those types of innings before. Uh, would be would be my answer. I I don't know if you're about to agree or if you have something different. I, I don't think. No, no, you're you're not. You're partially right, but I will argue that at that point in the season, all of a sudden, that's when the micromanaging started, and that's when pitchers were being pulled after giving up just two runs through four innings. Um, and uh, I mean, there were some starts that they deserved to be pulled. Yeah, I'm not I mean, there were a couple. There were a couple you know, turds in there. Velasquez there were. had a couple implosion starts. Uh, but you have to you have to admit that there were starts where guys were pulled really early. August twenty first, for example, Velasquez start four innings had given up one earned run, three hits, and was pulled after the fourth inning. How many pitches did he throw? Do you know? Do you have it there? Uh, Fifty eight. Okay. Yeah, that's quick. Who was that? Okay. Against? Had given up uh, Washington. They ended up losing the game 10-4 to when the bullpen imploded. Um, 
and they put you know pulled him because he wanted to have a you know an at bat you know to have a big inning that didn't happen. Um, and then you had to rely on a bullpen that is taxed already um, to come in, and boom, he's pulled. The next, his next start, Velasquez. After that, in Toronto, um, and even in a game that he wins, okay, gives up two earned runs, pulled after five innings, on you know eighty-four pitches. Okay, it's a little bit more, but he's probably got another inning in him at least, if not two. Why tax the bullpen? And then if you look again, Velasquez, five innings, three runs, 73 pitches against Miami, and they lose that game. It's like, why are we pulling pitchers so early? It doesn't make any sense. So if you want to sit there and say, oh, they regressed, yeah, there were starts where these guys were not good down the stretch. I'm not defending the five of them or the four of them. Nola was pretty solid all year. I'm not going to defend the four of them completely. Some of it is on them. But I just gave you four consecutive starts by Velasquez where he was pulled early only because the micromanagement of it. So now if you're, if you're getting pulled early, if you're, if you're a starting pitcher not named Aaron Nola and you know that there's a chance you're going to get pulled so soon, now are you trying to pitch to, per, to perfection? Now are you trying to be a little bit too fine with your stuff? Now is that, is that creating an opportunity for you to have more uh, games where you're not on your game because you're trying to be perfect. I think that it, I think that there is a direct correlation there, and that that is definitely something that I will put on the manager because I think that the manager was so focused on trying to get a run in the middle of a game because he didn't want to give up an out and says, I'll just rely on this crappy bullpen to get me through because maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get that big inning here. Um, and rather than let these guys who, for the whole season, carried you, suddenly now they're not good enough to carry you. I'm, I'm sorry, I think, no, it's a, you know, I think it's partially on, on the manager. And there, I'm sure that that's a, a valid argument, frankly. I, I agree. There were times where you watched it and you said, if you want these guys to learn, right, if you really want to put them through this process and, and you say, hey, they have to get this experience, they were at times, or Kapler specifically was at times, way too quick with triggers when it came to these guys. Um, with that said, I mean, and I didn't check the numbers and I, I didn't feel the need to, uh, but, you know, specifically McPhail had mentioned that we had guys like Zach Eflin who were outstanding in the months of June and July, and then at the end of the season he pitched to about a 10 ERA. Um, and then same thing with Vince Velasquez. He was one of the best pitchers in the National League for a period of time, about 8 to 10 starts. And then he was a disaster. He had a plus 9 ERA down the stretch. And so, I mean, the numbers weren't pretty. And if you look, and I'm taking a quick look now at their splits, uh, if you go with their month-to-month splits, they, they are they're pretty rough. And, and perhaps that's because they felt like there was a – extraordinary amount of pressure on them to be good early in games and they knew that they were going to get quick hooks yeah that may have played a role but the the numbers aren't pretty for either guy down the stretch and he said you know in mentioning those two guys specifically that we are the most inconsistent team I have ever been associated with Uh, and that was a direct quote and he said that kind of in reference to lamenting the difficulty of assessing this team's overall progress like one of the biggest things that the Phillies are going to have to figure out this offseason, and he said as much, and I totally agree, is how good are they? How, what can they believe? Like the positives that they saw for four months, how much of that can they believe? And then 
how much of the disaster that they witnessed for the final two months of the season can they believe? And that's really what they're going to have to weigh out, those inconsistencies and then that just wild variation in performance, right? Like, that's that's going to be a, a huge part of it. And then one other thing that he said, and it was a little bit later on, he said, I wish we'd get a little more left-handed. So the two things that I kind of come back to listening to that is that there's, there's an acknowledgement here that you can't go in to this this next season with Nick Pavetta, with Vince Velasquez, and Zach Eflin all in the rotation, and wherever Jared Eikhoff lands, and I know that he's not totally out of the picture. You can't go into things with three complete wild cards. You know, you just you can't do it, and I don't think they're going to. And then when I listen to them to him acknowledge that I would like to be a little bit more left-handed, that leads me to believe that if you want a prediction, an off-season prediction, in a, in addition to the, the lineup changes that they're going to make, and I do think they're going to go out and sign either Harper or Machado. I, I firmly do believe this. I, I do think that at least two spots in that rotation are going to be different next season. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, just, to, just to add on to my argument, uh, in starts after August 18th, uh, not by Aaron Nola, they had two quality starts out of 32. Oh, I totally believe that. I'm, I'm surprised. I'm and, surprised. But wait, here's two. even – uh, even just yeah, I know one was by Eflin, uh, the fourteen to two win over the Marlins, and the other one was um, Arietta's start in Colorado that the bullpen imploded on. Um, he had only given up three runs in six innings, um, but e- even more damning in those thirty-two starts, only four times did a pitcher go six innings. But you know, I mean, listen, I'm willing to concede. So- so really, I mean, it's kind of hard to throw a quality start. It's kind of hard to have a quality start if you don't throw six innings. I'm willing to concede that that he was quick at times, but you know those guys were bad the last six weeks of the season. Some of them they were. Some of them they were. Yeah, I mean, Eflin got pulled early in the game against the Mets on the 19th that the Phillies ended up winning 11-7. to Eflin pitches five shutout innings. And gets pulled. Yeah, but but and now the fu- here's the thing. And, and you know, I mean. <laughs> I will tell you, as someone that has uh, some coaching experience, you start to get a little bit, I, I don't know, uh, skittish maybe might be the right word. I mean, there were plenty of starts where they went out and actually scored some runs against the Nationals back in, I guess it was August. I want to make sure I get my months right here. But they went out and they actually scored some runs for Zach Eflin, and he just blew up. I mean, yeah, he you're squandered right. multi-run leads. And so when you say, like, hey, we've gotten through five yeah. innings, I'm good on this. Like I, I'd rather take my I'd rather take my chances with the bullpen. When you watch a guy struggle that much, you, you kind of get to a point where you say, "All right, I'll, I'll, I'm good," you know, and you get out while you're ahead. And I I can't totally blame him for for feeling like that. And uh, I'm gonna stop defending them now because I'm not this happy with their performance. And I know that every time you say something, I'm trying to take the opposite stance, and I don't mean to do that because I, I for the most part, agree with you, and I've agreed with you for the majority of this season. I, I don't like the job that Gabe Kapler did for the most part, frankly, uh, especially over the last two months. But um, I don't know. I just there there are more sides to it than than just well, you know, they were impatient. Yeah, yeah. You're, look I, again. He, a manager is not going to lose you double-digit games. A manager is not going to lose you whatever they lost in the second half. What, um, 
What were they down the stretch? Fifteen and thirty-five in the last fifty, whatever the hell they I think were. It was like sixteen and thirty-three over their last. Whatever they were, forty-nine. Se- Seventeen. I think it was seventeen and thirty-four. As a matter of fact, um, so he he you know, a manager is not going to be the reason you're seventeen games under five hundred um, in fifty-one games, but a manager can have an adverse effect on a handful of games for sure, and once that happens a few times. How do you think it? How do you think that plays in the locker room? Well, I, I think that the, the especially with, especially with a guy, especially with a guy like Gabe Kapler, who is so ego driven, yeah. no, and we know that true. because at the beginning of the year it was all about him, right? At spring training, it was all about him and his and his hashtags and his T-shirts and everything else. So the, he's very ego driven. So. W- you know, some people would say, um, and I, I heard this recently, and I know you, again, I, I know I'm kind of playing coy here and I'm being a little bit more, I, I can't come out and say this directly, but a lot of people have praised Gabe Kapler for taking the, the blame off his players or, you know, never being critical of his players. The more sinister observer would say he's not doing that to keep the blame off his players. He's doing that to keep all the attention on himself. That it's it's, it's I me. Agree. It's me. It's me, and everyone needs to talk about me. And well, I've I've heard that, and uh, it's something to think about. You know, I yeah. I, Certainly, I'll give you. I'll give you. An, I'll give you an example in this town. Uh, you know, let's look at the, you go to the Eagles for real quick. Here's a team that just won the Super Bowl. Okay, who they've not gotten off to a great start. And, you know, the cornerback Jalen Mills has not had a, a, a great start to the season, really didn't look good against Tennessee. Jim Schwartz, who's a defensive coordinator, asked him, you know, are you going to make a change there? Well, I'm not going to make a change, he says. But he says, uh, you know, Jalen Mills was a big reason we won the Super Bowl last year. There's your positive. He goes, but he's been playing cornerback like a 2-2 two and two cornerback. And we've been playing defense like a 2-2 two and two team. He, we, he needs to be better. We need to be better. This, is is that anything wrong with saying that? Is that is is suddenly Jalen Mills now not going to be a good corner, not going to play good cornerback because his defensive coordinator said he's played cornerback like a two and two cornerback? I don't think so. No, I, I think he's perfectly within his right to say that. No issue there. That shouldn't break right. players' confidence, and I'm I'm sure <laughs> right. if, if what they say about Jalen Mills is true, it won't break his confidence. So uh, no issue with that. And I think. Uh, and I'll actually just jump ahead. I had a list of things I wanted to talk about, but one thing I really appreciated from McPhail today was what he had to say about Gabe Kapler. And he says uh, he will probably get an all-expense-paid dinner where he's going to have to listen to me drone on for two hours. I watched this happen to Dusty Baker. If you're just overly positive, overly positive, you lose credibility with the fans after a while. You have to find a way to craft a message that is not critical of your players or negative, but acknowledge that there's some areas, like the rest of us, we have to make some improvements. And I mean, that's exactly what Jim Schwartz did with Jalen Mills. And it was refreshing to hear that because at no point throughout this 2018 season do we even get the slightest bit of acknowledgement that, yes, it was completely asinine and somewhat insulting to the intelligence of this fan base and the media here that nothing was wrong, that everything was great, that they had laser focus and they were trying their asses off. I mean, we all know that that was bullshit. It was kind of nice to hear today a high-ranking Phillies official come out and say, yeah, that's got to change because that's no good. No, you're you're right. And it makes me wonder what exactly – Gabe is doing in that clubhouse. 
because I tell you, the, I read the you know the coverage of every game. Start with you on Crossing Broad because you're giving opinion. But then I, I go to the, the beat guys who are down there and traveling with the team. And, and I want to read what the players are saying. And I, I have a hard time finding positive quotes about the manager. Can I ask you something? Because you, you have beat experience, right? And I, and I don't. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't hide that. Um, I, I'm kind of curious. It seems to me like the overall tone up until maybe the last two weeks of the season when it just got so absurd was relatively positive about Gabe Kapler. And I think maybe for a while a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were 15 games over 500 and they spent more than a month in first place. I think, I think McPhail today said 38 days in first place. So, okay, I mean, you're not going to come out and crap as a writer on a manager of a first-place team. But I don't know. Did you feel that he was treated fairly, or maybe almost too generously, by the media this season? Um, yes, but not the whole season. I thought that they were pretty on top of him early, um, deservedly so, with the struggles that he had at the beginning of the season. But then, once the team, once it started to show that the Phillies were a first place team. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, oh, gee, okay, this is working, okay. So now I'm going to get on the manager's good side. I don't want him to think that I'm constantly berating him in the in my, you know, in the newspaper or on my website, whatever the case might be. And and they kind of just went with that for a while. And, you know, it's kind of like when, you know, when Andy Reid would always say, um, you know, the same thing every week at his press conference so that the questions almost became – irrelevant so it, it i think gabe was a lot like that because when the team would lose you would get positive so it'd be like okay so i'm not going to ask him a hard question he's not going to give me anything but i will say this about andy reed the one thing that he said repeatedly over and over and over again that drove people nuts but was actually correct was we need to put our players in a better position to make plays I think that that equates in all sports. And I would argue that a lot of the time this season, that the, when the Phillies lost, it was because they were not in a better position to make the plays that they needed to make to win games. And, I, and that, again, comes down to mostly those decisions, mostly come down to the manager. Some of it is pitching coach. Some of it's the hitting coach. Some of it's the general manager. But, you know, a majority of it is going gonna, gonna to come down on the manager. And, and so, I mean, look, the guy who was – there were people who were talking about Gabe Kapler's manager of the year at one point in the season. And I rolled my eyes because I, <coughs> I never saw it. I couldn't believe it. But people were saying it. You're starting to sound more like yourself now, by the way, as, like, as you're getting warmed up. You kind of like lost that, like, uh, yeah, hidden man thing. Yeah, you're thanks. Um, but – I, you know, I, it just, it, it just, eventually, eventually, you know, you, you show yourself and you show your, you know, your warts and all. And I don't mean that just by the manager, I mean the team, okay? So once we realize that the Phillies, well, and we realized it sooner than most people, but once you realize that the Phillies weren't what they were parading themselves out to be, 
it's kind of foolish to try and still pretend that you are what you weren't to begin with. Right. And I think that that's kind of what McPhail was going with there. You know, it's like it's it's silly. You're insulting, you're insulting your players. You're insulting the, the organization. You're insulting the fans of the team. You're insulting baseball by doing that in a lot of ways because there are people who are watching saying, "What the hell is this guy talking about?" And so you got to be, you got to take a different approach. I'm sorry, and, and that's why. You know, everybody's like, "Oh my God, we're gonna make, we're gonna keep ripping Gabe Kapler because he's too positive." It, it's that's not the argument. It's not that he's too positive. It's that he's saying things that aren't accurate. He's trying to he's trying to make you believe something that's not accurate, and then you makes you wonder in the clubhouse with the players because I'm not convinced that he is. If the players don't like him. Because all he does is text you or shoot you an email, then maybe maybe it's not working. Maybe that's that's part of the problem. So look, if, if Gabe's coming back, and obviously he is at this point, then that needs to change too. More so than maybe more so than what's happening on the field. I agree with that. I think that the human element That needs yeah. to change. And I know that Reese Hoskins came out and had some supportive words for him but you know we heard a couple guys say it's not Gabe you know it's us and that's all fine and well but you do get the sense overall that there was some uh I I don't know uh, some of those players were less than thrilled at at different points throughout the season about the manager and I, I think that that was pretty evident even if none of it was really you know in black and white or printed um one thing I will say I was impressed, like I said, overall with Andy McPhail today, but he did kind of downplay the team's use of of analytics, and I am so tired of using this word, but it was Howard Askin who, of course, asked about, you know, what's with the analytics, and what are we doing with this, and and why are you guys so heavily dependent upon it? And one of the things that he had said was, uh, there's a narrative about our team that we are analytically driven. Yeah, we have a much bigger analytic department than we did three years ago because essentially we went from zero to what is now probably industry standard. And he kind of went on to say that it's, it's turning things from being subjective to now being uh, objective. And that it's not just, hey, throw, and this is his example that he gave. Uh, it's not just throw a high fastball because they struggle with high fastballs. It's... You know, they're hitting 111 against fastballs that are 94 miles an hour or greater up in the zone. And, and th- that's really the only difference. And, and I think that that's disingenuous. And I think that it's, it's very obvious from what they've done with the minor league hitting instructors to what, they, you know, what happened with Joe Jordan, uh, the former uh, director of uh, player development, has, has since left the organization. Um, you kind of see on the field, if you just watch the games, that obviously uh, there is nothing traditional about this Phillies team, the way it's managed, the way it operates, the defensive alignments, who they have playing certain positions, the way they do their lineups. I mean, this is, this is not your older brother. This is not your older brother's baseball. This is not your father's baseball. This is, this is really nothing that we're used to seeing, even if other teams across the league are, are starting to implement some of these tactics with more frequency. Um, I was a little disappointed that they seemed to kind of try to, or, or McPhail specifically tried to distance himself today from the, the analytics-driven approach of this team because it's clear uh, that it, it heavily influences what they do. And if, if, they, if it didn't, I'm a little surprised that the team didn't try to throughout the course of the season 
squash that narrative or change that narrative, but they made no attempt to do so. And I, I, so I thought it was kind of weak that today that that yeah, was the message. Yeah, that bothered me. That certainly bothered me. I mean, it's obvious that that analytics drives this team. It's obvious. And to sit there and, and try and make pretend that it's not, it's, it's completely disingenuous. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, I don't know. It's why it's what's why I don't. It's and and I felt I found the I found his press conference today to be refreshing. I really did, and there were a lot of things that I appreciated. And I said, okay, I, I believe this. I, I I think that there's a sense that this guy's being genuine here. But when it came to that, I said, oh, you know, it, it felt a lot like that. We know more than you. You don't really get this. You know, it had that that holier than thou type of vibe to it that I thought we got from Clentac quite a bit on on Monday afternoon. Mm-hmm. It's why, it's why I don't want any of them uh, there anymore. I, it, it starts with McPhail and works down. I, I don't buy into any of these guys. I think that they're all feeding us lines. They really are. Uh, let me give you a, a good quote here, and I'll, I just want to – where are we at? We're at 53 minutes. Let's see if we can wrap this up within 10 minutes. There were a couple other quick tidbits that, that I thought were kind of interesting. He was talking about the inconsistency of the pitching staff, but he also talked about uh, some other players as well, and namely Mike Alfranco. And uh, just tell me if this sounds like a guy that will be back next season. Uh, Franco hit 330 in July and then backed it up with 240 in August. I mean, the other team, you know, maybe they'll find the key or maybe it's a function of just experience and learning yourself and what you have to do to stay focused and energetic the entire season. So either Andy McPhail thinks that Mike Alfranco doesn't have the focus or energy to stay locked in all season, but he basically said as much, and I don't know if this is a Freudian slip or what, but maybe they'll find the key, the other team. Yeah. Uh, Mike Alfranco is not coming back, right? Nope. No, he's gone. Um, and it definitely sounds like that. And I think that that really, though, um, illustrates the crux of what the Phillies issue is going to be and the, the biggest thing that they've got to navigate and figure out this offseason. Yeah, but your worth, third, base, your third baseman next year is who's not? Your third baseman next year is going to be Carlos Santana. It, it very well may. And when I first heard that idea and they first started playing him in spots for, for uh, you know, certain innings uh, earlier in September, I said there's absolutely no way. But as the month of September progressed, I, I started to actually resign myself to the fact that it is very possible that that's the case. I still do believe this is pure speculation. I, I think that they will try if they can, even though it's probably not a great look to go out and sign an established veteran to a three-year, $60 million deal and then try to eat the contract and move him after one season. I do think that they will try to move him. I don't know that they'll be successful in doing so. And so if he's back – I think, especially listening to McPhail today, who had said that, that getting the players in the right defensive positions this year, uh, this upcoming season, will be a priority. Uh, there's no way in hell Reese Hoskins playing left field in 2019. Uh, there's no way. Uh, and, and so either Santana's manning third base uh, come next spring or he's nope. somewhere else. You know, there's just no way you can go back and do that again. It's taxing to the pitchers. It's disheartening to a yeah, team. I agree. To watch routine I, yeah, fly balls fall. It extends the, innings. The, it extends pitch counts. You just you can't do it. You can't one of play the things, baseball like that. One of the things I did like by uh, McPhail today was I uh, kind of took a shot at Clentac and his free agents. Uh, yes, I have this quote. Um, this is good stuff. So, uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Matt Klintak came out Monday afternoon and he talked about how the Phillies had the fourth best free agent class uh, last winter. Um, and if, if you go by war, if you look at the total war that they added over the course of the offseason, 
And so um, Andy McPhail actually mentioned that today, and he said, uh, we spent $169 million on free agents from 17 to 18. I think Matt alluded to this yesterday. That's the second most of anybody. If you calculate how good your free agent class and used war as the measuring stick, we had the fourth most productive class, but spent the second most, not exactly the most efficient use of your dough. So basically saying we spent all this money and we didn't get a, an adequate or a return value. Um, so I was, I love that actually. And I know that a lot of people are going to be upset because he, he talked about that. And that quote came under the context of, no, we're not just going to go out and spend money recklessly this offseason. I think that everyone expects the Phillies to zip up to a $200 million payroll, go sign Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. He does not seem like a, he did not sound, and I know that he doesn't benefit from tipping his hand here. He doesn't sound like a guy that's prepared to go out and sign both of them. I do think they're going to go out and make one big deal and then add some, some you know, second-tier guys. But, uh, I, you know, I know a lot of people were kind of upset. I saw the immediate, the immediate Twitter takes where they're cheap, sell the team, they're not committed to winning. Uh, but I, I think that he made a good point. You know, we're going to go out and we're going to spend. We're going to try to get the payroll back up to where it was, you know, from 29, uh, 2009 to 2012, 2013, when it was up amongst the top five, top ten in baseball. But um, I, I don't want him to go out and spend recklessly. I want him to have some financial flexibility moving no, forward. No, I, I agree. Um, that said, they're, they're going to spend money this, this offseason. They're going to spend a good amount of money, too. I don't think it's going to be Machado and Harper um, together. Do you think they get one? I think they're going to. Sh- I think they're going to shoot for the stars. I don't know if those guys want to, you know, have Philadelphia as their number one spot on their list. Um, I think that they both have the Phillies maybe in their top five, you know, but I'm not convinced that either one of them has the Phillies at number one. That said, the Phillies could easily vault to number one because of the money that they can spend. Um, but when you hear him say we weren't left-handed enough, I think that's Patrick Corbin's going to be their number one target. Yeah. That's how yeah, I took maybe. that. Uh, you know, there's there's danger in that, though. You know, some of those – the strikeout numbers are huge. Um, but, man, I don't know. You're talking about, what is he, 29, I think, going into this offseason? You're, you're talking about paying another guy – Big time yeah. money. Um, yeah. That that is not necessarily. We're not talking about one of the ten best starters in baseball here. You know, it's it's tough. This isn't Cliff Lee. This isn't Roy Halladay. You know, so we'll, we'll see if that's the way they go. Uh, but I, I agree. There's going to be interest there for sure. I think. Um, I'm, I'm watching as we're talking live here. The uh, Rockies just escaped a Cubs threat yep. here in the seventh. Uh, it looks like. No, actually, they're, what are they saying, foul ball here at the play? Yeah, two on, two out. They're down one nothing. the Cubs are. Um, <laughs> by the way, the Phillies aren't even close to these two teams. But <laughs> it's just they're not even close. Um, yeah. A couple other things before we get out of here. Uh, actually, we'll, we'll just leave it at this. No. Um, I found it very interesting. I, I think it was Jim Salisbury, not absolutely sure, but towards the end of the, uh, the presser, he asked uh, McPhail – can you give us uh, Matt Klintak's contract status? And, and McPhail said, no, uh, I don't benefit from doing that. It's just going to cause speculation. Uh, good question, but I'm not going to answer it. you find that weird at all? Like, I, I guess I understand why he wouldn't, but I thought the non-answer was, was sort of curious. Yeah, I think that the non-answer tells you that his, he's probably entering the last year of his deal. 
because he says he said you guys would have a lot of questions about it, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that tells you that he's entering the last year. That maybe he his initial contract might have been three years, and he maybe at some point got an extension, and this is it. So he basically he's I think he's on the verge kind of thing. I think it's a show me off season. And if you have a good off season and the team gets off to a good start next year, maybe Clintac gets an extension at that point. If not, to twenty twenty, there's going to be new people here. That's how I read yeah, it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, you got anything else before we close it out? I don't. I need. I need to go drink some water because my th- you talked it out. My You're throat is killing man. me. You got. You got stronger as as it as it went on. Yeah. It's like the Michael Jordan flu game for you. It is. Um. All right. Well, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh. I'm Bob Wankel uh, for Anthony Sanfilippo. We will be doing regular shows throughout the course of the offseason. Frankly, I think that the offseason is going to be more intriguing than the past two months of the regular season were. So we'll still be checking in, uh, hopefully on a weekly basis. Might spread it out a little bit, uh, especially here early on in the offseason. But we want to thank everybody for listening to us throughout the course of the 2018 season. There were some highs, definitely some lows as well. Uh, But we we built a pretty good following with this show. We have a lot of fun doing it, and uh, we have big plans for it moving forward as we get into the 2019 season and hopefully the Phillies return to the postseason uh, for the first time in eight years. Be sure to check out uh, Crossing Broadcast. Uh, That will air uh, Wednesday morning uh, along with this show. Uh, I know that they had a special guest on and and that'll be very intriguing I think for a lot of people so make sure you check that out. Uh, It's always soccer in Philadelphia uh, with Kevin Kincaid uh, and Dave Zeitlin. Uh, What else do we have? Uh, Crossing Broad FC that's with Russ Joy and uh, Phil Kaidel, and then uh, we have Snow the Goalie Flyers starting up their regular season on Thursday night. Of course, Anthony, you're involved with that, along with Russ, and I know that you guys will be providing great coverage of the Flyers and Gritty oh, stop. for the 2018-2019 season. All right, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll check you soon.